The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our Not School Learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. are listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then tragically thought better of it. Our question for episode 117 is the truly universal question. If you want to bury your brother and your uncle won't let you, what should you do? And we read the play Antigone, coincidentally just about that, written by Sophocles in around 441 BCE. You can join the discussion Get the text and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer paying obeisance to the gods in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. I'm John Castro in Manhattan. You have to say this is John Castro. This is John Castro in Manhattan, which is in New York City, by the way. All right. Start us off. We want ground rules to break the ice. Safe word. <laughs> the ground rules for our discussion include, number one, try not to assume our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. However, we just recorded the play. So go listen to the play. You have no excuse. You don't have to read it. You just have to listen to it. And if you're not too distracted by our performances, then you'll get the meaning. Well, uh, you can at least enjoy Lucy Lawless's performance and, and paul provenza hell yeah and castro but the rest of it's a <laughs> it's a shit show <laughs> number two don't make arguments that hinge on something other than what we've agreed to read don't say you would know what i was talking about if you'd seen the all butter production of othello all butter i guess i it puzzles me i haven't seen it <laughs> should we have a reading of that or is that more of a performance <laughs> I think you have to be there to really get it. Number three, we'll be rigorous and exact in all that we say, unless doing otherwise would be potentially more entertaining. We got three St. Johnnies on. I'm outnumbered for the first time. And you guys did this thing at St. John's, your alma mater. Well, the undergrad alma mater for two of you. And Dylan was a tutor there. So what was that like? How did you treat this? It's commonly part of the sophomore year, the first semester. It's commonly translated or at least big chunks of it are translated, along with reading it in the Greek. It's not done in seminars, I recall. We're not actually given much of this to translate, right? There were some preceptorials on it where you could translate the whole thing. but I think it varied a lot from tutor to tutor. And certainly in sophomore year, not everybody did Antigone. Like, for instance, I did Oedipus Rex, not mm. Antigone. But uh, typically the pace would be start from the beginning and do, you know, like 10 lines a day and then jump ahead to some other section. It's very hard work translating it, especially yeah. if you don't know any Greek, which no one knows when they're a sophomore in college. I think we did all three in seminar. You mean discuss them, not we, translate them. People might have been doing translations in their individual language classes, but if I recall, Antigone, Oedipus Rex, and I think Oedipus at Colonus were seminar readings. So I might be wrong about that. The reason that I asked is because you're supposed to instruct me in this, how to talk about a play and not get all 
anal about finding enough philosophical content in it, right? I couldn't come up with a question out of this. I had to make up that bullshit fake ethical question for our intro here. Folks can go and listen to our not school discussion with the fiction group that I participated in on our citizen site about Antigone from last summer. And we came up with some things to talk about, but it was very difficult and people were sort of looking me, to me for guidance for how to wrench philosophical issues out of it. And other than the ethical thing that we already brought up in the discussion after the performance last time of about conflicting duties and how maybe there are just conflicting duties and they're not defeasible. They're just both incumbent upon us. And that's just a tragic sense of ethics. So that was the big thing that I had gotten out of it. But apparently there's more to it. And even if there was less to it, you could just talk about it as literature and still have a stimulating St. John's style discussion. The first thing is to not say we're going to wrench philosophical exactly. Content, that's, <laughs> right, that's the, that's the very first thing. That's very Creon-like of you, yeah, did you, Mark. Is that something that you that you find yourself doing with literature all the time? Only when we try to talk about it on the podcast, which I we haven't done that many times. So gotcha. we're establishing a precedent here. Last time we tried to do it was with David Brin, and see what happened with that. Yeah, but we did it with uh, Cormac McCarthy, but I guess we had the benefit of having a philosopher who had written a paper about it on there who brought up Nietzsche and stuff like that, right? So right. I looked what philosophers had written about this. I found a little about what Hegel had to say about it, and, and Wes found us a bunch of articles. I looked at the first one that are Freudian, so that was kind of neat seeing what somebody thought the unconscious motives of all the characters were that inspired some lines in the Antigone theme song that I wrote. What I thought was really interesting. So as Mark pointed out, the classic conflict that this play is taken as representing is between the divine law and then the laws of human beings, let's say, or between loyalty to family and loyalty to state. But what interests me is the, so if you look at Creon's first speech, the play starts out, we get, you know, Antigone telling her sister Ismene that she's going to bury her brother, despite the fact that Creon, who is their uncle and who has taken over the rule of the city after their brothers who were co-leading that seminar, killed each other, basically. So they, they got into a fight and there are different accounts of how that occurred. But one brother left the city and came back with an army, Polynices and Etiocles, is that how you pronounce it, was defending the city and was killed. So... Etiocles will be buried by Creon with full honors, and Polynices is going to be left out in the open, unburied, which was a very big deal at the time, a dishonor to the dead, and I think probably would still be a big deal today. One of the descriptions of the conflict that I read was that Etiocles and Polynices had made a deal that after their father Oedipus was dead, you know, he had actually stopped being king even before that, then they would alternate years, that one would be the ruler for a year. So Etiocles was, right. had his year, one of the... and then he was supposed to give up his reign, and he just wouldn't. And so Polynices left the city and started this rebellion. So really, if that is the correct account, you would think that's one of the things that Sophocles' audience would have had in mind. Then it seems like you know, the one who's being dissed by Creon here was actually in the right in the conflict. But right. The other thing to keep in mind that the audience would have had in mind is that so these are all the sons and daughters of incest of Oedipus. And Oedipus actually has laid a curse on the two sons. And he the curse is that they would kill One kill each other. other. Yeah. Does anyone remember the reasons for the curse? It has something to do with something that seems quite trivial. He lays down some rules. 
So one of the brothers serves him in a using the silver table of Cadmus in a golden cup, and he had forbidden that. And then the other gives him the haunch of a sacrificed animal rather than the shoulder, and the shoulder's better. <laughs> Basically gave him the wrong cut of steak. Maybe if you fucked your life up so much, you know, <laughs> killing your father and marrying your mother and then finding out about it and your mother kills herself and you blind yourself, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be setting rules like that. Maybe that's not the time to be presumptuous. Or maybe those are the things you just start to focus on. <laughs> yeah, maybe the need for rules, because, of course, the incest is the opposite of that, right? So it's the the ultimate violation of boundaries is, is incest. So you could see those types of rules as an attempt to regain what you've lost through incest. When we get to the first speech of Creon, he's not framing his debate with Antigone in terms of justice versus familial loyalty or loyalty to the gods. He talks as if he's speaking about loyalty himself and he's talking about loyalty to the fatherland and he also talks about friendship which he does repeatedly throughout the play there are a few little things that creon does that are repeated throughout the play he's repeatedly accusing people of taking bribes yeah but one weird. of the other things he yeah and that's another thing for us to talk about what the meaning of that is and then what interests me most is this repeated talk of friendship so he talks about being a friend to the fatherland and before you're a friend to anyone else. And then later on in the speech, this speech actually begins at like 162. And then how one's friendship to one's own land, to one's fatherland, is the groundwork for any sort of friendship at all. So he says, nor could I count the enemy of the land, friend to myself, not I who know so well that she it is who saves us, sailing straight, and only so can we have friends at all. So... If you can't be a friend to your own country, you can't be a friend to anyone. So it's this interesting argument. What's interesting about this first speech is that it's a really – it's a long kind of intricate argument in favor of his position. And he's trying to do a sort of reductio ad absurdum. Oh, you say there's some sort of higher friendship than friendship to one's country. Well, friendship to one's country is just the very groundwork of any friendship at all. So it's there can be no such friendship. With it. He makes a similar argument later on. Maybe right after he and Hyman are done blasting each other, I think he, he says something to the effect of, if a man can't rule his house, how will he be able to be a decent ruler? I mean, I think it's very personally about him as king. Right. But it's, again, it's, and I think maybe this is like the portal for more metaphysical concerns to enter the discussion or to sort of be pulled out of the play. But there's a cosmology to these duties, right? There's a way that they intersect and sort of chain all the way up to the gods, too. And that the breaking of those duties is, is something that actually threatens the, the structure of the world. So if there's no peace in the house, there can't be peace in the kingdom. Or Wes is pointing out that without friendship to the state, there's no groundwork for friendship among friends. And that that fissures in those, I don't want to say relationships again, but fissures in those duties to family, to friends, later on to the gods, actually complicate the picture everywhere. There's no way that a conflict in one area is isolated without a serious conflict somewhere else. Well, I think it's interesting that you bring the relationship with the gods in and put it on the side of relationships among family and friends. I kind of do, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the conflicts that's in here because in some way, both Antigone and Creon are claiming a kind of allegiance to that. Right. Creon in the sense of 
the order that's presented by the city is one that's preserved and endorsed by the gods. And uh, Antigone, that the familial ties and the proper death rites for her brother are endorsed by the gods. That's right. And, and there's a moment where Creon, when he's confronting Tiresias, Tiresias says the reason why all this is going down is that the altars themselves are polluted with the flesh of Polynices. His unburied flesh is polluting the altar. Um, right. This and, is around a thousand, somewhere in the early thousands that he's saying this. I'm using the same text that we used for the reading. Yeah, which didn't seem to match what Wes was reading. I'm okay. using the green translation just because it's very literal and it Got goes it. line Got by line. Got it. Sorry. Um, and it marks all the lines. My lines are marked too. I think this is around somewhere like in the 800s. Something. But the line that I'm thinking of is that he basically says, no man can defile the gods. Actually, Creon, interestingly, says that as a response yeah, that's, that's to Tiresias. I mean. So I wouldn't give him up for burial in fear of that pollution, for I know no mortal being can pollute the gods. Right. Old Tiresias, human beings fall. The clever ones fall the furthest when they plead a shameful case. This is another one of Creon's memes, the clever falling on people who have taken bribes and things like that. But yeah, so this, so Tiresias has given this idea that there's a pollution and Creon isn't buying it at this point. And that that pollution is connected to the duties owed among humans, right? The failure to meet the duties between human beings causes a, a corruption in the duty or the, uh, let's say, the ritualistic practice that we owe to the gods so that there's some connection there from high to low. I mean, you know, that term, the great chain of being or something like that. But it's that this king is unjustly treating one of his, I guess, nephews who's passed on, the fact that, that he's not paying him the duty he is owed is actually creating a rift between the divine and the human. Yeah. One of the things Tiresias says is yield to the dead. There's this line from the dead to the divine. The idea that when mortals die, they go to Hades and they join so Antigone will talk about joining Persephone in Hades, and of course she'll be joining Hades himself. There's some sense in which whatever form of afterlife this is, is a conferral of some sort of divin not divinity, but association with divinity. And there are things owed to the dead. And that, I think that's one of the conflicts here is what's owed to the dead versus what's owed to the living. For Creon, it's about what's owed to the living, the people who have survived the war, the state. For Antigone, it's about what's owed to not just someone who's her kin, but also she frames it more generally in terms of what's owed to the gods and what's owed to the dead. There's a, just a little mirror of that where I believe when they're discussing the two of them in the tomb that, Creon, you've denied the gods of the dead. You've denied them Polynices, right? You didn't let him die. And you're sending the daughter of the daylight or something, or it's some phrase like that. You're sending her into night far too early. So basically, he's flipped the order of things in the way they should be. Yeah, Tiresias seizes on that that irony of Creon's punishment for Polynices is a denial of burial, not burying someone who's dead, and then his punishment for Antigone inverts that. It's a burial for the living. When he makes that decree, by the way, he's already you already see sort of hints of his him having second thoughts. Why not just kill her? At first, he's more bold. I'm going to slaughter her on the spot. No one's going to make me a liar. Now he's kind of doing the James Bond. 
villain thing, right? He's going <laughs> to give her a chance to escape. Also yeah. not take responsibility for her actually dying. It's a similar thing to exposing your child to death rather than slitting their throat, right? Somehow you have distanced yourself from actually killing them. <laughs> right. So that they can come back later on and kill you. Exactly. I was going to say, you think this family would have given up on that tactic? <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess I'm being a little speculative here because I do think that Tiresias unambiguously indicts Creon. I'm wondering about that sense. Is he indicting Creon completely in every way or is it more for the extremity of his reaction? Is it more like, well, you know, you had a point with Polynices, but look, he's dead. So you have for the good of the city, everybody's against you and you've made it worse by condemning Antigone. You made everybody else against you. Both of which are true. And so I'm wondering how much of Tiresias's advice has to do with the good of the city against Creon's understanding of what the good of the city is. He understands himself as preserving the integrity of the city and that punishing Antigone is really part of laying down the law and maintaining order. And without that order, the city will fall apart. And Tiresias is saying, well, look, you're actually violating the necessary behavior of the city and therefore not ruling it properly. As opposed to it being about not properly appeasing the gods or something like that. That's certainly the latter is how it reads. I've seen these ill omens on my altars and you've brought this calamity upon us. Our hearths and altars are stained with the corruption of dogs and carrion birds that glut themselves on the corpse of Oedipus's son. So it's just you did the wrong thing and the gods are now deaf when we pray to them. Their fire recoils from our offering. Their birds of omen have no cry of comfort, for they are gorged with the thick blood of the dead. And it doesn't seem to go in any more detail other than, Creon, why can't you just admit you're wrong? And why are you accusing me of making this announcement for profit's sake somehow? You know, so he defends himself against Creon's kind of crazy accusation. Yeah, that comes up again. Which he had against the century earlier that right. anybody that's defying him must have somehow been paid off by somebody. Like as if Polynices has a bunch of financial backers or something. So is what I'm remembering voiced by the chorus and not by Tiresias? What are you remembering? Which one? I'm just remembering that the issue of Creon's behavior as being bad in two ways. One is that it's not just Antigone that is affronted by the act of not bearing Polynices. Hyman says, makes that point. Okay. This, this is how everybody in the city is talking about you. Yes. Okay. What are the two ways that he's done something wrong? It's just up in the ante. I mean, I guess it's basically the same way. But the first way is not allowing Polynices to be buried, which he does on the grounds of integrity of the city and essentially the rule of law and that the traitor Polynices had disrespected the order of the city. And so the way he goes wrong in that is not realizing that once he's dead, then there are some higher rules that the city operates under that must be adhered to, and there's a way for him to rule, but still allow him to be buried. And then same thing by upping the ante with Antigone. It's a similar kind of violation of trying to hold too tightly to the rule of law and the human conception of the city rather than sort of the divine origins of it. What you just said, it brought together two questions that I had in my mind that I had thought were disparate, but I think that they're related now. What does he actually gain by refusing the burial? He has that speech at the beginning, and I'm sure somebody has a line, I, I don't have it close to hand, about how not honoring the ignoble dead is part of how you keep the state functioning. But before we get to that line, the question that I didn't relate to it before, but you said what you just said, 
but I see it now, is what is it about what Theresius says convinces Creon? There's no compelling piece of information that sort of flips things for Creon in the way you might see in a different tragedy that I won't name because we weren't supposed to have read it, but everybody read it. <laughs> no, I, I thought it was that Theresius tells him that a bunch of your loved ones are going to die. And that was basically what has him unsettled. But, th but that's what's so, funny about it, because you're right. That's what he says. This house is going to be filled with all sorts of men and women weeping. This is, I guess, this is 850 in the edition that we used when we read it. Curses will be hurled at you from far cities grieving for sons unburied left to rot before the walls of Thebes. These are my arrows, Creon. They fall for you. All right, kid, let's get out of here. He heads out. And <laughs> the chorus says, it's almost comic in the way it's written. The chorus is like, you know, he's gone. But you know what? He's always right. <laughs> and Creon's like, you know, that's right. I'm troubled by that. Right. That you his prophecies I mean? come true. That's one of the first things Creon says is that. Maybe it's just yeah. that Theresius has gone into prophecy mode and that's enough. That once he starts doing whatever little dance he does when that happens, it's, you know, <laughs> that the, something real is being handed down. But I still didn't understand what it was that flipped the switch for Creon. It's just the combination of, like, when Tiresias is challenging him directly, then he can't accept that. Because whatever the benefits of him saying that Polynesia should not be buried, once he said it, then to go against it is to itself defy the state and to violate personal loyalty. And everything becomes very personal. Right. That Antigone has personally betrayed him. He even accuses Ismene of personally betraying him because she's the sister she must have been in on it. A snake in my own house. So when Tiresias does the same thing, then he accuses him, you know, you must be telling this because you've been paid off. And it's only when he goes that he can kind of let it not be a personal confrontation with Tiresias anymore. When it's the chorus, the choro goes explaining, giving the line, the old man is gone, but his words remain to plague us. And so this makes Creon finally say, it troubles me, but oh, it is hard to give in. Yeah, but it is worse point. to risk everything for stubborn pride. So he's able to finally self-reflect for the first time. And once he does that, like, it just takes a little bit of pushing from the chorus to get him to completely switch around. Although Chorgo says, you know, take my advice. What shall I do? Go quickly. Free Antigone from her vault and build a tomb for the body of Polynices. He should have done it in that order. Because <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. No. They go right, and <laughs> right. And then when the messenger tells the story, they mess around with collecting all of Polynices' body parts. Because by that point, he's been ripped apart and burying them doing all the stuff before they ever go to the tomb. They actually do That's an take a lot point. of time. <laughs> it's odd. Real quick, what Mark was saying, like the next thing that Creon sa says is he asks the chorus for permission, right? Yeah. It's an interesting sort of chorus because it sort of accedes to everything he says until the very end. But sometimes there are little ironic hints. So there's a reticence or there's an sure. ironic hint. For instance, after Creon's first speech, the response of the chorus in the very literal David Green translation, is this resolution, Creon, is your own. So he's been talking as if he's the representative of the state. And there are lots of those little ironic jabs sure, um, sure. in the chorus's replies. Antigone being led away to her doom is just prior to Tiresias coming in. And that seems to be what turns it around, is that she's so popular. And so you have this ode number four that you guys read that just reflects on how tragic and how like the tragic things in the myths in their religion what's happened to antigone so i think that's really where it turns around where they actually see maybe they thought he wouldn't go through with it or you know there would be some way to settle this and not just condemn her to death but even before that with hyman the chorgo says pretty much you're both being wise here you should listen to each other so already it's shifting yeah hyman definitely softens him up 
the irony of there's this line that the sentry has this is right near the beginning. I think it's when he brings Antigone in. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this is right before he takes off to go find who did it or if it's right before he leaves after Antigone's been caught. But he says something to the effect of there's nothing more comfortable than a safe skin, even if you're turning in a friend. You might be turning in your friend to the authorities. That's after. That's after he's brought Antigone. Yeah. One's own escape from trouble makes one glad, but bringing friends to trouble is hard grief. Still, I care less for all these second thoughts than for the fact that I myself am safe. Which I like the other translate. Yet I always say there's nothing so comfortable as your own safe skin. There you go. (laughs) That in a way, like you see the effects of... You know, because, again, that whole thing of Creon's always accusing people of being bought off, which it seems like such a foreign element in this play, right? To me. Because you don't see any examples of that happening at all. Well, the corporations are working behind the scenes. Right. Well, it speaks to his paranoia. He's suspicious of the motives of others. So we could talk more specifically about why it's money. But I think the main thing is it's a matter of his sense that others are not acting in good faith. That's an interesting contrast because it relates back to you asked, what did he have to gain from prohibiting the burial? And I think in the beginning, I think Creon is acting in good faith. At a certain point, it becomes pride. But the initial order, I think he's acting in good faith. And I think he sort of, once he's challenged, it's just everyone else is acting on bad faith and I'm the only one acting on good faith. So he sort of, in his own mind, hoards all of that to himself. But I think this whole speech about, so he's just become the ruler and... He had to figure out what to do in this situation. And he gives a long reasoning about why he did it. And he's, you know, he's saying things like, you cannot learn of any man the soul, the mind, and the intent until he shows his practice of the government and law. For I believe that who controls the state and does not hold to the best plans of all, but locks his tongue up through some kind of fear that he is worst of all who are or were. So essentially, this is his first challenge as a ruler, and he's got to show that he's a good ruler. He's come to the decision which he thinks is actually going to demonstrate his goodness. That's the, I think, part of the tragedy here. It's not just an ill-conceived sort of command. There's a definite logic to the command. It's one way of looking at things. It's in the interests of justice. It's a way of punishing someone who seemed bent on destroying the state. It's a way of honoring the state. This is what's on his mind in his first decree as a ruler. Yeah, and... There's yet another translation, but it's, these are my principles at any rate, and that is why I've made the following decision in the, I guess this is in the Loeb, Hugh Lloyd-Jones. These are the rules by which I make our city great. So Yes, I, yeah. That way of saying it gets to what you're saying. Yeah, uh, this in the green, it's with such good rules shall I enlarge our state, which I like that because it's ambiguous between enlarging his own state, enlarging himself. You know, there's always the question of whether he's acting on behalf of himself or the city, and whether he is the city, he'll say things later on in yep. his dispute with Hyman, where he's identifying himself with the city, which, of course, is the constant temptation of someone who's in a position of power. Well, I mean, if you're going to be at pains to identify yourself with the city, then you need to identify yourself with everyone in the city. And there's this just this thing that he, you know, I'm probably more attuned to this just because I'm a 21st century individual, but the way he continually isolates women and the youth from the right or the ability to make decisions or to add their counsel to his decisions, right? It actually, there's one kind of telling moment where Creon says, my son, he says to Hyman, you've you've sided with a woman. And Hyman says, if you're a woman, yeah. 
Which is, of course, like, you know, a little bit of a shout out to Tiresias, whose mythological nature is somebody who flips between those two sexes. Oh, really? Did that inform your performance, Dylan? Did you know that? Couldn't you tell? <laughs> <laughs> well, I noticed you tried to, it says... I tried to be sing-songy at first, the beginning. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. On the first line, yeah. it's sing-songy in contrast to Creon, yeah. Yeah. and that's hard to do. <laughs> yes. Hence, it was terribly done. <laughs> well, don't you think, though, that, I mean, this is where, you know, having the context of a little bit of the other plays makes a difference, right? Theresia's... The, Which the audience didn't have, right? Because this was produced first. Well, no, but well, the well, audience... Of course, the knew, audience, uh, audience knew the stories. I mean... You know the story, yeah. You're right. It was produced first. Theresius's nature would have been something they were all yeah, aware all, of. Yeah, and all these stories are the kind... It's like the Odyssey or the Iliad or something. I mean, if you grew up here, you would never have heard it the first time. Everybody knew these stories before they even, you know, knew them. It's like a Spider-Man reboot. <laughs> I was about to say that. <laughs> it's like what Batman is to us. That's exactly right. For better, for Spider-Man worse. and... Sophocles. Hey, kitties, let me tell you a story about a man who fucked his mom. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a children's story? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying, you know, I, I no. was actually, this is just a side note, but I was actually like <laughs> getting really kind of offended by the number of reboots. And you sit there and you're like, is this all the creativity that we have? You know, that we were constantly actually remaking the same movies about the same people. Until a friend of mine pointed out to me, he's like, well, you know, why is this really any different than... The way you would have experienced stories in different media about the Trojan War. Or 80 different versions of Hamlet. Or the Bible, for that matter. So part of that backstory is that Oedipus was, before his fall, a fantastically successful king. And highly esteemed in his country, having come in after the death of their ruler. No one knowing, of course, that Oedipus was the one who killed him. And that, you know, the solving sin- the riddle of the Sphinx. Yes. Yes. He's all the riddle of so Sphinx. So he saves, the, he saves Thebes from the Sphinx. And Creon yes. is actually ruler at that time and Laius is dead. And so he awards him rulership because of that. He also awards him his sister. That's all good, important stuff to why Creon would be trying to assert himself in some very concrete manner. So... You know, him saying, these are the rules and the way I will make this city great, then that's him asserting that. So I guess I'm just going back a few minutes to agreeing with Wes that at the beginning, if maybe ill-conceived or maybe a little bit over the edge, his initial rhetoric is just one of just saying, look, this is the way we will make the city great and by sort of laying it down, being a strong ruler. I should say, I don't know how long he's been ruler at this point. It's not his first decree, obviously. It's... Well, is it? I don't know. Because it's Polynices and Etiocles yeah. have been rulers. So maybe we can consider this his first decree. But it's only ill-conceived in the context of Antigone. That's another well, what interesting comes thing after, about this right? play. Is it, is it his tragedy or hers? At a certain point, all our feelings, we feel sorry for Antigone. But she's uh, not the one who you, falls, really, right? No, it's not Creon at all. She, she doesn't change. And she's not the one who makes the big mistake. You know, Creon's the one who makes the big mistake. And well, is. I think that's up for debate, though. Because in some ways, she's in a similar position to Creon acting from a point of pride. Although I'm not actually asserting that that's the possibility that's always looming over this, which is that she is being just as prideful as Creon. They're very similar. Yeah. Her problem is not giving enough room to the rule of the city and apologizing and living with it. You know, she got the burial 
And so to live with it, sort of according to Mark's song, you know, why couldn't you just have apologized? It wouldn't have been that big a deal. She talks of wanting to die. <laughs> well, I was convinced, yeah, by this article that you pointed us to, this Renato Almanzi, a psychoanalytic study of Sophocles' Antigone. We can send people the link to that if they're curious. But yeah, points out this uh, friend shall I lie with him. Yes, friend with friend when I have dared the crime of piety. This is right at the beginning when Ismene won't help her. So the article is asserting that she had a thing for him, that it was an incestuous desire, and that what in Freudian terms wanting to lie next to or to join in death means is to sleep with them, to want to have sex with them. And the ultimate psychological significance of that urge is to essentially a return to a point at which you are no longer an individual. It's a return to the womb or to what the psychoanalysts call the pre-edipal. So that's the, I just wanted to, if we're going to talk about incest, that would be the larger psychological significance of incest. If we are thinking in terms of tragedy, there's a mechanical element to it. And this is where I'm actually going to speak against everything I said, or I, I only said it once, but I kind of wish we had done a little bit of reading in the poetics in terms of the way Aristotle would have defined it. You don't need Aristotle to see this, but the focus of the climax of the play and the forces in the play that are acting toward a new state of equilibrium are all converging on Creon. If we're trying to figure out who the tragic figure is, it's the person on a theatrical level that is the focus of the mechanism of the tragedy, right? Well, explain that more. I admit I'm probably defining tragedy too broadly, or tragic figures too broadly, and maybe what rules out Antigone as the co-tragic figure. On a very basic level, without, again, engaging in theory of drama or tragedy, he's the one in the play that suffers change. And so he she, sees the error of his ways at the end. There's a realization. My Aristotle is just way in my past. But I know a practicing playwright, uh, David Mamet, actually, who would structure his plays along a mechanism where the thing he was shooting for was the moment of reversal of fortune is the same moment as the recognition of one's own complicity in that reversal, right? That's why I asked that question about, like, why does Creon find what Theresius says compelling? I asked that question because I don't feel like this really binds those two moments together. It's that sort of a mechanism on the most basic level. Somebody who was high is laid low. I just think Antigone is really a solid block of stone. I think she's a very well-drawn character. But she just, she just trucks through. The irresistible force. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think you're right in the, you know, if we're going by Aristotle, this is straight out of Aristotle. So the reversal of fortune in ancient Greek, it's called the peripatia. And it's exactly the point at which the character also suffers and then realizes and comes to that realization. So maybe Mark was right. Sorry, Mark. You know, I actually, with my daughter, just watched a Brady Bunch episode that had the same thing, where Peter <laughs> was, a, was a hero, and he was declaring himself a hero, and he threw a party for himself, and no one would come. And then he's standing there in this goofy-looking late-60s suit, staring at the table full of party favors and crap that nobody's at, and that's the moment where he... His parapetic He moment. suffers change, yes. Oh, that's beautiful. I didn't know that was so informative. I thought it was when, Aristotle. when, when uh, Marsha got hit in the face of the football. But. 
That is a change. That is a laying low. If we're going to talk about Antigone as tragic in any sense, it's not in this very strict sense. It does beg the question of why it's called Antigone and not called Creon. Totally. Totally. Do we actually know... Marketing purposes. <laughs> actually, that's a good question. <laughs> I am not showing up to Creon. Exactly. I don't want to see well, that. Well, no, but it is a good question of what the actual name was. I don't know. I think it was Choragos. I think that was the name of the play. <laughs> the question it was is... Do you want to see Paul Provenza or do you want to see Lucy Lawless? Sorry, Paul. There you go, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's look at scene four where Antigone has her final talk to see if she has any sort of reversal or anything. I mean, it just seems like it's a long, broken up morning farewell. Look upon me, friends, and pity me. Turning back at the night's edge to say goodbye to the sun that shines for me no longer. Now sleepy death summons me down to Acheron, that cold shore. There is no bride song there, though, or any music. And... All the rest of the speeches are about the same. And we should point out that not, she doesn't perform in them in that mocking tone. <laughs> <laughs> no, Lucy did a good job of being serious about it. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is also very interesting. You could argue for some sort of subtle reversal in the speeches here that she gives at the end. She's certainly in a different frame of mind, right? She's certainly not in the, I, you know, fuck you, I'm going to do this and I don't give a shit. She's now in a state of mourning, but it's no longer directed at her brother. It's directed towards herself at her own fate. This idea, you know, I'll never get married. And and Oedipus, it finally brings back in like the third speech where the chorus says, I cannot tell what shape of your father's guilt appears in this. You have touched it at last, the bridal bed, unspeakable horror of a son and mother mingling, their crime infection of all our family. O oh, Oedipus, father and brother, your marriage strikes from the grave to murder mine. I have been a stranger in my own land. All my life, the blasphemy of my birth has followed me. Why Hyman? Like, why is he here? What's the importance of the marriage that's getting interrupted? Like, that reference that you just read, Mark, clearly is connecting the original, quote-unquote, marriage sin with what's happening to her now as sort of a fate passing down. Seamus Haney expresses it beautifully. He says, fate is breaking upon this family like a wave cresting up and dredging up all of the black sand at the bottom and crashing that black muck down onto this generation, right? Uh, maybe I'm being a little precious here, but I'm just curious like, what the marriage is about. Why does it need to be interrupted? Why do we even have her as a bride to begin with? Could we have done without it technically in the play? So there's something important about love, I think. And the chorus gives a speech about love. What's love got to do with it, Wes? <laughs> I think so, that song is one of the translations of uh, so, the of this play. <laughs> <laughs> so the chorus is talking about, this is after right after the fight between Hyman and Creon, just after 780. So Creon is just given the decree to take Antigone away. And the chorus goes, love unconquered in fight, love who falls on our havings. You rest in the bloom of girls' unwithered face, blah, blah, blah. You twist the minds of the just. The wrong they pursue and are ruined. Desire looks clear from the eyes of a lovely bride. So the idea here, of course, is that Haman has been corrupted by love. But I think it speaks to this larger idea that it's Antigone's love for her brother, that that's something excessive and wrong about that. And that's directly contrasted, at least here implicitly, to her love for Haman. And then, of course, in her speeches, she will talk a lot about the fact that she's never, you know, not for me was the marriage hymn, nor will anyone start the song at a wedding of mine. Acheron is my mate. So this idea of death 
being her lover. So this attraction in the very beginning to death, this attraction to her familial tie to her brother, that stands in tension with the desire that brings you outside of the family. So you can see, again, this sort of mirrors this idea of the incestuous family tie could be incestuous versus the desire for others outside of the family versus one's loyalty to family and state and nation versus one's loyalty to laws that transcend that. It's still along the lines of that, those same sorts of conflicts. But I think the, this idea of love here and marriage is actually important. We should throw out that Hyman is family, though. He's a, he's a cousin. Cousin, yeah. right? Like half cousin, if there's such a thing. Yes. And I bought another thing that came out of the Almansi article is that Creon's tone with his son about this, and I'm going to take your bride away from you, <laughs> that Creon actually does have a thing for Antigone. I couldn't really see that so much in the text, but it does seem an explanation for the vehemence. And supposedly, I guess I haven't read Oedipus at Colonus recently, but that he's very possessive, Creon, of both the sisters in that. No, I don't see the attraction. What I see is what you would see in any situation, which is that the prospect of losing a son, right? Every marriage out of the family, he's holding on to his son as a son at that point. Um, mm -hmm. That seems psychologically plausible to me. Can I throw a question just to keep looking at this relationship between or not relationship? between Antigone and Hyman. This would just be a shadow hanging over the play, I guess, but like any sort of sense that their marriage would lead to some sort of political restoration or some sort of return to or reuniting of the line in some way? You mean like Antigone would somehow legitimate Hyman above Creon in some way? Well, legitimate the line. I don't know Hyman above Creon, but Hyman when his time would come and actually thereby legitimate Creon immediately. I see. You're thinking, John, in the context of just why this marriage in the first place as opposed to why might Creon have other reasons for wanting to seize the moment to be opposed to it? Yeah. In other words, they're probably including the marriage as a device for the play, right? As a mechanism inside the play, if he's a good playwright and, and Sophocles is like the greatest, right? He's putting it in there for a reason that sort of sets up some markers for us to understand the rest of the play by. One part of it would be the things that Wes was outlining in terms of this very complicated familial morass that this whole crew is sort of wrapped up in. But another part of it, too, is that that same morass or difficulty would be echoed in the structure of the state itself, right? So when we're done with this play, what do we have left? We have Creon and no heir to the throne. But if Hyman and Antigone had been allowed to be married and consummate their marriage, you would have actually had Laos's heir. So in the sequel, then uh, Creon marries Ismene and they live happily ever after. Is that? I mean, don't you have two options? So you were wondering, John, why this plot point at all? So you could imagine that Hyman didn't exist at all. And it was all on Antigone and her conflict with Creon. So then you have the problem of like, you know, who is part of prodding Creon besides Tiresias? And Haman has a huge role in that. And then if you just had Haman in there as that role, but not have the marriage, which I thought was the other point, that why do they have to be getting married? Then I guess you get to where Wes is about the question of love that isn't their tie 
that is related to another version of friendship, right? It's either a familial tie or another kind of loving tie that isn't part of the structure of the state, or it's part of this old version of the structure of the state. I guess I'm still stuck on this idea that the mistake that is being made by Creon is not understanding that the state is born out of the family and that he is overreaching in the notion of an external rule of law or of the king over the people and not paying proper respect to the rule underground. And I desperately, desperately want to refer to another Greek play. But <laughs> So I, what know, is it's it? interesting, what is though, it? when I'm thinking here of the communitarian argument, right, of grounding justice and identity rather than abstracting from identity. I don't think we necessarily have to go down that route. I think we could go down that route. I do think that we should try to discuss the ethical issues involved and to what extent they have resonance for the present day. Is it something that philosophers, as opposed to just people interested in good literature, Can I ask why you guys decided to do this? Why did you decide to take a departure from doing philosophical stuff and focus on literature in this case? Well, Sophocles is brought up a lot in philosophical contexts as presenting a distinct view of ethics. And even though it's a little oblique, he's not writing an ethical treatise. So we're also going to do uh, St. Augustine coming up and just starting to look through that. The way that he talks about sin is not a, just a straight up ethical treatise like John Stuart Mill writes, but still you can get a clear picture of a kind of view of ethics, which was hugely influential throughout history. So that even by itself would be enough of a reason, but also just philosophically rich literature is among the things that is within our purview. So I wanted to say why Antigone needs to be in a relationship. And one of the things I had mentioned was this contrast between her love for her brother and her love for Hyman. And actually, it's clear that Hyman is attached to her. It's not clear that she's that attached to him. So in that yeah, she hasn't mentioned it at all. Speech. That I... Actually, she, what she says is, this is around line 900 and, well, a little farther down towards 910 in my translation. She's talking about her choice. The wise will know my choice was right. And now she's going to justify it in terms of her familial relations. So had I children or their father dead, I'd let them molder. So she wouldn't have done this except in this specific circumstance. She wouldn't have insisted on burying her own children could you locate that in terms of, like, the scenes? When she's being sentenced? Yeah, this is one of Antigone's last too? speeches. It's her second to last. So not when she's being sentenced. When the sentence This is her out. last long speech. Okay. It starts, O tomb, O bridal chamber, O deep dug yeah. home. Towards the middle of that, she's going to say, Had I children or their father dead, I'd let them molder. I should not have chosen in such a case to cross the state's decree. What is the law that lies behind these words? One husband gone, I might have found another, or a child from a new man in the first child's place. But with my parents hid away in death, no brother ever could spring up for me. Such was the law by which I honored you. So, and then she goes on, no marriage bed, no marriage song for me. So she seems like she's mourning, and since no wedding, so no child to rear. In this very same passage, she is both mourning the fact that she's not going to get married, and she also says something which indicates that her attachment to her brother because he's her last brother. You know, it's odd because if it were her last sibling, it might be a stronger argument. Like, this is my last familial tie, right? But it's her, <laughs> there's Ismene. So she has to say something really odd, which is that it's her last brother. In fact, this struck me as odd. And I did a little research and I found out that 
many scholars think this is an interpolated passage, and Goethe was adamant about this. He thinks it's totally out of character and totally in conflict with the rest of it. It seems like a weird explanation of her act here. What about the end of it, that section where she says, for acting piously, I have been convicted of impiety? Yeah, I stand convicted of impiety, the evidence my pious duty done. What justice of the gods have I transgressed? So, I mean, at the end, I guess I would agree that it seems like there's some kind of discontinuity in the beginning. The end, though, seems to be right on for... Yeah, I'm just talking just about this specific part of it where she's talking about the rest of it. Yeah, it's purely in line with the rest of the play. But this specific passage, and it struck me as odd before I found out that scholars, or at least Goethe, you know, are adamant about it being... Are you saying you're like Goethe? Yes. (laughs) No, I'm just saying it's an odd, it's clearly... I'm saying I didn't just... Lift I'm more like Goth myself. Lift this from a secondary reading, but it actually struck me as odd before. Two things I heard. So the Almansi article, that psychoanalytic one, makes, again, a big deal about this as showing that she has incestuous feelings for her brother and that this is just weird. However, another thing that I had heard, and I can't remember the source of this, it's some online lecture, I believe, on iTunes U somewhere that I listened to when prepping last summer for this, who just said this was just part of ancient Greek society and a weird thing about it, that they prize their siblings more than that everything else is. If, if your parents are dead, then you can't have more siblings. And of course, even if you are a woman, you're going to value this particular point is not something I remember, but I'm just adding this, that since there was no value placed on women at all anyway, <laughs> then you wouldn't have her count Ismene in this calculation. She's only talking about child and father and brother, really. So among the men, children are replaceable. Parents are supposed to die first. Therefore, the emphasis on the sibling is just that was part of ancient Greek culture. And I don't know if that's true, that this is not weird at all. This goes towards this tension between her love for Haman or love versus love for brother. And here it's, it's of course, minimizing the romantic love at the expense of the familial love. And again, this goes towards the larger issue of friendship and the way communities are grounded, right? How the state survives, how the state continues. On the one hand, these familial ties are, as Dylan was pointing out, foundational in some sense. And the state, we saw in our politics, Aristotle's politics episode, that the state is in some way an extension of the family. On the other hand, its propagation depends upon bringing things outside of the family, which Oedipus... (laughs) family was not very good at doing. It depends upon creating these new ties with people who are essentially strangers, right? Turning strangers into family members. That's the other aspect that is critical to the propagation of a state or a society. So one could argue here that Antigone's focus on this is actually quite, you know, that Creon is right in sensing that there's something antithetical to the state in this sort of attitude. But what if there's like um, something to be said of, let's say Antigone is sort of a emanation of Creon's stance, right? I mean, one thing that we noted earlier on, especially with the chorus or the people who, who are telling Brian what to do at the end, and you had noted the sort of ironic jabs throughout. Haman is in rebellion against his father. Antigone is in rebellion against Creon. Creon thinks everybody is in rebellion against him. And that in some way, Antigone is, is like a nemesis of Creon. I'm a little bit at odds, I think, with the way Wes and Dylan were thinking about Creon's original speech as being somewhat reasonable. But just looking at it from a different stance, if he's being absolutely unreasonable and he's breaking a fundamental rule, which is the dead need to be honored, right? Then is 
is Antigone some sort of necessary response by the order of things? She is his uncompromising character in a different housing, in a different body, and she's speaking for this entire worldview that he is opposing with the state. You know, John, what you are describing sounds like Hegel's interpretation of Antigone, which I just did a search on philosophical interpretations of Antigone like five minutes before we started the discussion. And it talked about, yeah, Hegel saw these characters as representing opposing irreconcilable moral claims. So he actually saw them as kind of characters in his dialectic that if you say, ah, Obeying the state, that's the right thing. That's what you got to do. If you don't know, you know, that's really what the social contract is, is obeying whoever's in charge. Then, of course, you would expect then the antithesis to come along and argue the contrary. And so that's what's being dramatized here. I'm not so sure if I agree with that. The whole conversation is about obedience to the state. And Antigone and Creon are just talking about different ways to do that. Antigone isn't a partisan of chaos or of anarchy. Or democracy or yes. anything. For yeah, I mean, she's, she's a partisan of – she's talking about divine justice being more important than anything else. But divine justice is connected to the state. It's not just something else. Uh, no, absolutely. I, I would just create a contrasting image, which is to oppose Creon, you can conceive of the state as something that is nested within a series of duties and laws that are larger than the priorities of the state. Or smaller in some ways, like the family, but larger in a bigger sense that the well-functioning family throughout the state is necessary for the state to be healthy. And likewise, a well-functioning relationship to the godhead or heads is necessary for the maintenance of the state. Could this be a variation of the Euthyphro question that instead of you're asking, are the gods beloved just because... Are the gods uh, good it, because it, they're loved or loved because they're good? Yes. So we should obey the state and the state, you know, normally obeying the gods and obeying the state amount to the same thing. But really, can we piece them apart? Can we say that you only have to obey a state if it is in line with the gods? Or is it you just have to obey the state and they are God appointed and so they will do the right thing or at least you're not in a position to or the state, that. the rules and assumptions that undergird the state if they are not in line with the divine order, will create creatures who will come into conflict and bring about the dissolution of the state. So it does sound like it's sort of a, a proto-social contract kind of thing, but a passive one. It's not locks, you know, you have the duty to revolt if the state is not obeying the God's justice, but that the gods will themselves rain vengeance and put things right. Or punish at least. So we're getting at a classic kind of problem of justice here, which is that in many ways, right, justice runs against our familial ties. So think about Plato's Republic, where you, you know, I think Thrasymachus' definition of justice, right, is helping friends and hurting enemies, which is why Creon's talk of friendship versus enemies resonates so much. And, you know, some societies operate more on that in that frame, they operate more on a sense of justice which depends upon honor and taking vengeance when your honor has been sullied in some way and observing loyalty to family above all else, even if that means going out and achieving, quote unquote, justice your own way by killing the person who killed a member of your family, kind of family feud stuff and Hatfields and McCoys and so on, all of that stuff. But as the state grows in power, 
the concept of justice transcends all of that and really comes down with a heavy hand on all of that type of behavior. You don't get away any longer with, you can't say, oh yeah, I killed that person because they killed my family member. Oh, okay. No, you're going to jail. So the justice starts to turn a blind eye to concepts of familial attachment and loyalty and also to questions of identity. This is part of Sandel's critique of the Rawlsian version of justice. Its conception of what the good is very, very thin. It abstracts from identity and family attachment and race and any other types of grouping or identity you can think of. And this tension runs deep in the Greek plays that the generation of the state is a kind of compromise that goes against something utterly natural. And I am just going to say the example that I was thinking of earlier, which is Aeschylus's Oresteia. And the last play in that group is called the Eumenides. So the basic story is that Agamemnon in the first play comes back from Troy and his wife Clytemnestra is waiting for him. And before the Greeks all sailed for Troy, Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter Iphigenia so that they could get safe passage across the stormy oceans to sacrifice her to the gods. And Clytemnestra harbored a lot of anger about this for the whole time and slits his throat while he's in the bathtub and kills him. And then her son, Orestes, goes and kills her. And then the question comes up is, he's a mother killer. Shouldn't he be killed as well? And in the end, in the last play, Athena stands in judge and Apollo is one of the lawyers in the argument. And the Furies are arguing for blood in this case. And they've been pursuing him. That's the... That's right. They've been hunting him down. And so there's the question on the one hand, well, you know, he was perfectly right to have done it versus blood ought to be paid. And Athena, on the one hand, judges in favor of the city and lets Orestes go. But she renames the Furies, the Amenities, or the kindly ones, and puts them beneath the city so that that eye for an eye, familial ties are right underneath the city all the time, sort of founding it, holding it together, despite the fact that there is on top of it this structure that goes against that, that puts it aside, that you can't have that Hatfield and McCoy kind of justice and have a city. But in the end, it is really underneath it the whole time. Yeah. Creon is sort of on the side of this transcendent justice part of things, the state. But he makes that argument in the beginning, that very first speech, in terms of mm -hmm. family ties, right? In terms of friendship. It's an odd way to do it, right? Instead of saying, no, you know, no one... I mean, he does say, essentially, no one is above the law, and I'll punish my own niece, my own family member. I don't care. But he casts that in terms of, we must be a friend to the fatherland. We must be a friend to the state. That, in a way, becomes a familial tie in its own right for Creon. And then if you look at the way Antigone's doing exactly the reverse... She's arguing in favor of the family ties by way of transcendent justice, which is divine law. This is why I think it's more complicated than just a simple conflict between what I'm calling the transcendent justice versus the familial ties, because those two things turn out to be related to each other in some sense, inevitably related to each other. And I think they're just emphasizing different ends of it. So in the case of the dead, you know, a lot of Antigone's line is also about what's due to the dead. And of course, that's about our ancestors. 
that's where the laws come from. When we speak of the dead, I think indirectly we're speaking about those formative forces which make the living who they are, right? We're speaking about the culture that's been handed down from our ancestors. We're speaking about the law that's been handed down from our ancestors. So it's not that laws simply appear in a vacuum. That's another kind of familial time. But it's really important that it's Polynices, one of their own, or at least shortly there before one of their own, is the dead one. It's not like it's an enemy of the state that's being left to... Well, okay, I guess I should bracket that. Right. It's a literal enemy, but it's not a historical enemy of the state. It's not somebody from a different state. Yes. So it matters that he is the brother of Antigone and the nephew of Creon and a very recent former member of the city. Right. Creon is treating him as if he's the enemy of the state, but on another way of viewing it, he's just a participant in a family squabble, right? He's just someone fighting with his sibling. Well, he was also, he was unjustly denied his time as ruler. Ategoles refused to step down after they had agreed. After they had agreed. And so from a whole another perspective, he is actually the rightful ruler of the state. It's right. interesting to me that Antigone never really talks about that. Right. But clearly, Creon is making a category mistake. Oh, God. That's, that's the <laughs> proper analysis of the play. What do we say about wrenching philosophy out of... Sorry. Well, I do want to wrench because you've set up... I like this whole vengeance and family stuff is ultimately at the root. Is it the historical source? And is part of our reverence that goes to the state is not to this abstraction, but really is in some sense to this more barbaric or more primal underpinning... Obviously, that's a very different way of thinking about justice, I think, than we have today, where we feel like, eh, you know, if we all agreed, you know, we're not British common law. We could just change the laws now as a practical matter. We still do tip our hats to the founding fathers. And there's, you know, quite a lot of our political culture is based on that. But at least in the abstract, we make our own laws and we don't feel like we have respect to the law itself. There's more some notion of abstract justice and stuff that we picked up from Locke and that if our ancestors were wrong about stuff and they had slaves and whatever, then it's not only our right, but our duty to undo that. Is there any sense in which we can map this ancient view that you've been describing onto our modern political situation? Or is it that even useful? Well, think about how much we've lost in making that transition. So you're saying our political, the shallowness that we're subject to today is a result of us ignoring this ancient thing. That seems a very well, St. No, John's I, kind I, of I thing. I what we've lost, un- John. Yeah. I'm not sure. I guess all I'm, what I mean is that if you establish a framework within which any individual, I won't say regardless of family ties, but often by just ignoring those ties altogether. Everybody's going to get the same murder charge, right? If they kill somebody in their family that Mm -hmm. somebody would get for killing somebody outside their family, right? And I'm not saying that that example is directly leading to what I'm talking about, but it actually has a social effect, right? Where over time, the notion of family that may have existed at the founding of the democracy has been eroded and replaced with a different idea or a different social norm. You're getting at the kind of critique that, we discussed in our Sandel episodes. So Michael Sandel wrote several books, but one of them, Liberalism and the Limits of Justice. And I was highly critical of that. So I'm critical of Sandel's project, which is this idea that you can somehow derive a priori the hostility of a liberal state to the richness of people's identities and to their communal ties and to the strength of communities and family. But empirically, I think it's undoubtedly the case that family and community mean less and are not as strong in such states. Or they have, there's a compensatory sort of understanding of one's individuality that's richer in other areas, like my understanding of myself as a citizen. 
Well, no, I'm not so sure that you get the citizen part out of it. I think that you get parochialism out of it. And it's very easy to have a kind of pie-in-the-sky view of small-town citizenship and how everybody is valuing their neighbors or getting along or having real arguments. But at the bottom of that ends up being deep parochialism and fear of others and majority exploitation of minorities. Deep, deep history of that. And the thing that liberal democracy is designed to fix is that problem. And you're right, and Wes is right, that it does come at a quote-unquote cost of putting a little bit more independence among people and flattening the way in which the authority of the state deals with them. Dylan, how are you now on the liberal side of this argument and I'm on the communitarian side? How did that How did that happen? Maybe where you and I disagree about Sandel is I do think that there's a kind of a priori point to be made about it. That, yeah, that might be but where I, we I think disagree. Sorry, what but, you're getting at, and I think I sort of stand more on... But I'm a deep liberal about this. I'm, I mean, I, th- yeah. I think it's an unequivocal good. <laughs> so. uh, do you really? Okay. I'm obviously a defender of liberalism and a sometimes strident one, but I think there's a real downside that we ought to acknowledge. I, yeah, I agree. I think there's something to be acknowledged there, but I think that once you have it, it's very easy to forget all of the downsides. I had a professor who he grew up in a small town in Iowa and talk about how there are really important things about that life that mattered and resonated in his life. And I asked him one time, why did you leave? And he says, it's just too parochial. So you can recognize the kind of beauty of that, but you cannot avert yourself from the real downsides that come along with that. I mean, I think a perfect example is the kind of tight family ties you see in tribal societies. And then just the horrible things that they do to even members of their own tribes, much less members of competing tribes. And you go to places right now in this world that are utterly absent of any notion of liberalism or liberal democracy. And it's just, to me, an untenable way of living. And you can point to beautiful scenes and real ties that bind between families and siblings and stuff like that. And it sits square right next to people exactly. stoning each other. Yeah. And, and and they're also, those sorts of governments are also highly corrupt. And the bribery yes. is a part of what, this is one of the things I thought about with Creon's focus yep. on people taking bribes, right? Is yes. this idea of he's giving you the negative view of the familial tribal loyalty thing, which is corruption and bribery and things like that. So apart from parochialism, that sort of problem, the other obvious glaring problem is the prospect of authoritarianism, which is sort of perhaps parochialism writ large. Because, you know, parochialism, that's about the oppressive authority of the community socially, their social expectations and what they can do to you. And often it's not stoning necessarily, but it's just shaming and the way gay people had to were, were living in America for a very long time, and, st- and to some extent still do, this idea of being despised and shunned and hated and ridiculed and all other sorts of things, which have very real consequences in, in people's lives. But then on the other side of it is just when that power becomes the power of the state, then you're potentially in big trouble as well, because that's totalitarianism, authoritarianism, all that stuff, which is what the liberal ideal is meant to prevent against. But again, it comes with high costs. But, you know, we have strong feelings about the value that accompany these different, let's say, approaches to one is an approach to statecraft, but another is just culture, right? You know, the previously existing culture. 
we have strong feelings about those just because we're participants and in some ways our characters are formed by being in them. But that might be a helpful way of thinking about the play. In other words, when Dylan, you were talking about the horrors of what, I guess what we're sort of identifying as the parochial culture, you're seeing those things in a state of transition in the present day. And we may be seeing them as damaged, not just from our own standpoint as participants in a different type of social order, but also because they are actually in conflict with forces that are being brought about by the change in social order that has made what we think of, like, I guess, again, liberalism is ascendant in certain places or, or over wide parts of the globe. If your experience is somebody who's sitting there watching the play at the time it was written, when democracy was relatively a new, who was acquainted with all of the mythology and the, the backstory that undergirds this particular dramatic treatment of this legend, you are sort of swimming in that mythos. And at the same time, in a related way, you are married to a certain ritualistic approach to your cosmology, right? You, in all likelihood, sympathize with Antigone or have participated in the very rituals that she's fighting for, right? And so if you're looking at it from a tragic perspective as an audience member of the tragedy, Creon is, he's talking about everybody who's outside the pale. The words used in the script I have are stiff-necked anarchists and all this stuff. But in a way, he is that guy, right? He's stepping in and announcing the power of this new thing. And he's saying, this is now banishing the rights and the way of life that came before it. It supersedes that. And naturally you would want, or not maybe want, but you would expect to see such a man take a fall. So when you bring up the idea of, the, of Aeschylus, there is something wonderful about the fact that a state has to exist is harmonized with what came before it. But here we just might be seeing the tragic breakdown, not the restoration of harmony or the instantation of harmony where it never existed before. Well, yeah, so I, I guess we don't see what happens after Creon falls and what happens to the state following this. But I do kind of feel like you have that warning embodied at times in the course and in Tiresias about Creon's overreaching. He set himself up to be the representative of a kind of justice that transcends familial ties that were associated with liberalism. But John is pointing out is that he's doing something obviously wrong. <laughs> That's cast in this play in terms of not honoring the dead or not honoring the gods. In present day, we might talk in terms of rights. Right? How would we say what Creon is doing wrong if we get rid of what's due the dead and what's due to the gods? I do want to just point out real quick, as you're making that point, Wes, that it's hard for us to speak about those things in ways that do not trivialize them. What do you mean? Because we don't believe yeah. that you should have to sacrifice right. for the dead and etc. I mean, I think that people would be you up in arms if... The idea of leaving somebody laying in the street, especially a member, we've glorified the sacrifice of a dozen soldiers gone to just retrieve one dead body. I think right? this ties into the Charlie Hebdo thing, too. Well, it's also, I was thinking of the Sarnev case when the brother who died in Boston, they wouldn't find a mortuary that would take him. They finally found one undisclosed, one out of state or something. I mean, that kind of ridiculousness where you're, there's something about, once someone's dead, they've paid their price, right? There's that kind of idea that any demands of fairness or justice or something have been sort of answered at that point. And the idea that you are chased into the afterlife by those concerns, there's something wrong with that. You see it as, as an immoral or an incorrect judgment or there's something wrong with that in that we just can't believe in it anymore? No, I'm saying it's, yeah, it's ethically 
suspect. I mean, it's disgusting. It becomes a matter of punishing more than just the punished, right? Exactly. If you're denying exactly. a resting place for this person, it's just punishing their family. But isn't the argument that right. it's also political, right? The case before us in Antigone is one which I mean, it would be maybe interpreting what Creon's doing beyond what he actually says. I mean, he says he's embodying the laws, right? But if you take the point of view that him burying a willful combatant against the state would undermine the authority of the state, in fact, maybe being a rallying point for other underminers of the state. In the case of the Boston bombing, I think that sentiment is much more clear of a combination of not wanting to pay the respect of it, which is very much sort of chasing after the dead. And the other would be a political question of, do we want to have a, a monument of some sort to someone who did this? There's a, an essay by Daniel Mendelssohn in the New York Review of Books. It's basically a movie review of the September 11th movies, Flight 93, and then there was that, that horrible one that Oliver Stone did. And he goes, he basically analyzes those movies, but he puts it in the context of a class he was teaching on, is it Aeschylus's The Persians? The point that he makes, and he holds the Persians up in contrast to the September 11 sort of movie industry that sort of blossomed there for a second. He says, um, it's really amazing to me at the height of the Greek victory, where this tiny nation had repelled this gigantic behemoth that essentially seemed to be something that stood against the values that Greece stood for. So this is the movie. Exactly right. <laughs> no, but he says Aeschylus's vision in the Persians is a sign of the brilliance of Greek culture in that I think it was the year after the victory against the, the, the Persians that Aeschylus wrote a tragedy whose central figure was the Persians. He has a very dim view of these September 11th movies because they're in some ways actually obscuring September 11th from us in a way. But there's something about the generosity of spirit and that sort of comes out of that unique culture that was happening right at that time that they were able to put their enemies in the microscope and sort of get inside their heads and present the story from that standpoint. So it would be easier to demonize them and, and to write something, a gung-ho, ooh, we kicked their ass <laughs> kind of story. That again goes towards this kind of demonization involved in not allowing someone's burial, granting Dylan's points. But as Mark pointed out, it becomes a way of, in the Star Sarnaev case, it became a way of punishing the family. And of course, it goes towards the easy and very anti-liberal collective guilt thing where it's Muslims and this and that. And the same for, um, in the case of Antigone, I think Creon thinks he's enforcing some sort of justice that transcends family ties, but really he's just engaging in that collective guilt sort of parochialism where he's Polynices was an outsider or he wasn't an outsider, but he made himself an outsider. It's worse in a way because of the betrayal. Yeah. The state, as it were, has drawn a new line outside of which you can define the people who are outside. It's just maybe more expansive than a family might draw or a tribe. So I found this whole attempt to connect the conflict that's going on within Antigone to the conflict that Sandel is describing, or just more broadly between parochialism and cosmopolitanism, right? The idea that there's an objective morality, that it's the same for everybody, that you treat everybody the same, that that sort of goes in line with there being a justice that transcends anybody's individual concerns. And on the other hand, that all justice at least is rooted, just like Creon argues at the beginning, is rooted in and is part and parcel of family relations. 
So, of course, normally we think of doing right by your family as also just doing right in general. And we think of obeying the state, your particular state, as also just being a good person, a good citizen in general. And it's only, I don't know if it's only in our modern time, but it's especially given our spirit of individuality that we cast ourselves as, no, 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 what I am seeking after as an individual, only as an individual can I really judge the objective good and Probably what my family, what my tradition, what my state tells me to do is codified. It's going to dilute it somehow. So this is sort of the Protestant ethic coming out of this that then translated itself with the U.S. into something political, into this spirit of individuality. Looking at it from that perspective, the tragedy of what's going on is you've got Antigone who thinks she's reaching toward the objective, toward the God, but is doing that by clinging to familial ties. And then we have Creon, who also thinks he's reaching toward the objective, towards what the gods want, but he's doing it really with loyalty to me, and I'm the ruler, so therefore loyalty to your government and the way that I am interpreting that Polynices was a traitor. So both of them are trying to reach toward the objective, but because they're in an older time, they don't even have a sense of the objective, that it was a, a great accomplishment that Plato outlined, no, no, you don't have to just pay attention to what the gods happen to love. It's that there's an objective good, and that's what the gods actually turn toward. It seems like either Sophocles is trying to make that same point, or he's just in sort of a pre-modern time, and so he can't make that point, because they really just didn't, back in this day, have the notion of the objective good. And then when we got to uh, McIntyre, a more recent ethicist, following Anscombe, this idea that there is an objective good is actually a modern myth, is something that came out of getting rid of polytheism and embracing monotheism. And according to Anscombe's interpretation, the majority doesn't have this underlying monotheistic theological view anymore, then we actually should learn from Sophocles, that we should learn from this picture, that there really is no objective good that we can all reach toward and have a shared peaceful experience. There really just is these sort of abstractions that we erect upon certain individual sorts of ties. Or even if there is such a good, it's too thin. You know, ethically, we need a more robust sense of the good. So this even gets towards a Nietzschean type of virtue ethics argument where yep. each individual, through the constitution of their character, has their own telos, their own end, their own good. Whereas coming from a straight-up Kantian yes, the good is objective stance, that's just the genetic fallacy. Yes, we learn about the good from family or from what the state says, but those are just stepping stones. And if you argue, as Sandel tries to do, away from the liberal, the objective, in favor of the individualistic, then you're doing something wrong. You're just confused yeah, of course, you know, about what the good is. As I've argued before, I think those two things are compatible. So, you know, the thin conception of the good and the basic idea of rights and things like that is perfectly compatible with a thicker sense of the good where you also value things like family ties. Part of that point is understanding that the social organization is not the sole or primary way in which you get your ethical understanding of the good. So you would understand your virtue, something like importance of a strong you know, virtue ethics, but not in a kind of platonic way where the state is responsible for educating you on those things solely. 
Well, you're right. Even on a platonic view, when we're not talking about the state basically having to take in hand the inferior people that can't see the good for themselves. You know, Plato is our big representative of maybe the originator, I don't know, of this notion of an objective good that's beyond any... I agree. I think that was a, a good point. I just was thinking in terms of the issue of the state and the way West mm -hmm. was framing that alongside a thin understanding of the good for a state that is part of a liberal understanding of the proper functioning of a state and its relationship to its citizens, there is a thick understanding of the good for those individuals that is compatible with that state. And I think that part of that is understanding that the source of that thick understanding is not the state. And that might be a way of thinking about a kind of mistake that Sandel may be making. Or maybe let's not say call it a mistake. Let's just call it that his point of view is that the state has more of an influence or the culture has more of an influence on that understanding of the good. Can we just make this a little more concrete? I, I have a feeling with this whole thick versus thin understanding of the good, we're probably losing a lot of people. So a thin um, conception of the good would involve basic commandments like thou shalt not kill and a thick conception would involve a whole set of religious beliefs, for instance, or any other beliefs associated with your ties to a community. But also, to what will help you flourish? So if we get down to the kind of Nietzschean virtue ethics, which extends into psychoanalysis, flourishing and being happy, it's not enough to observe the minimal commandments, thou shalt not kill, and so on. And it's not even enough to observe a thicker Aristotelian conception of the good where you're trying to develop virtues of, say, temperance and justice and courage and things like that. Those are still too generic. At the Nietzschean level, it's about finding out who you are at the level of character and then actualizing that. So it's about virtue specific, not to being a human being, but to being Wes or Dylan and so on. Which, of course, is tremendously innovative on the part of Nietzsche that you know both Creon and Antigone are putting their specific duties as if they're saying the objective good. In other words, what the gods command. That's their easy way to conceptualize that involves different things for different people, right? Unlike the utilitarian who is going to say, we can all obey the same abstract rule, you know, or the Kantian that will be able to lay an entirely abstract rule out for what you're supposed to do, or at least what you're prohibited from doing. But if you think that the rules are, well, you have certain duties toward the state or towards your family, then the empirical circumstances in which you are are going to then give you a much thicker concept of the good. In other words, because your family is telling you to do all this stuff, the state is telling you to do all this stuff, the state is setting up ideals, the family is setting up ideals, so that even just having an objective rule that applies to everybody, obey your family or something like that, that then blossoms into a, a bunch of details. Yeah, and the question of what was Creon's good in this situation, what was Antigone's good, obviously they both... Or not, I mean, Creon went to his ruin and Antigone to her death. But with right. honor. Some people will admire you as Mene, but I'm going to yeah. have honor. Yeah, least. we don't need to judge this by utilitarian standards or the maximization of pleasure or however you want to put it. <laughs> it could be that the state's good is something different entirely than either Creon's good or Antigone's good. I'm having a hard time not identifying Creon with the state's good. I guess I'm just looking at that first. Screed. I don't know. It strikes it strikes me as just pompous. In fact, I think that the translation that we read with Provenza definitely tries to bring that out. 
I mean, first of all, it's no longer in verse, right? It's in prose. And it sort of has like a an address at the boardroom feel, right? You just said that you thought that Creon was associated with the state's good, but then you're. it sounds like you're characterizing his opening speech as Weasley, and he's not really associated with the state's good. He's taking that upon himself. He's declaring it, but he's just a bag of wind, which I think is how most of us take the character. We don't find his opening thing convincing, which argument... Well, I, I'm actually, I'm just saying that if I'm thinking about the context of the play as a whole and what we actually see happen to Creon, that there is a judgment being passed on the arguments he's making, right? That they're shitty uh, and that he's not actually doing what is in the best interest of the state. Right. He's a so, bad but, leader. But the question is whether the, are those judgments on the state per se, is this sort of an anarchist type of argument or... No, no, I just think that the author might be looking for a way to show what happens when statecraft declares itself superior to a whole world of tradition and I guess it's what you guys are calling parochialism yeah. and how it'll destroy itself by taking that stance. Parochialism is the way of getting at the negative side of that, but obviously there are positive, there's a positive side to the tradition element as well. So it's not just a matter of autocracy. That's what I thought was the issue, that he should have been listening to the town elders the whole time. And even if you think that, yeah, okay, somebody has to be in charge, still a wise ruler is going to well, listen. Wait, the town elders were not of any use in the beginning, except with little, you know, they're also passive aggressive hints. I mean, right. in the very but I'm just saying that he, was, he didn't have a ch opportunity to listen to them. In the very first interaction he has with them, he says, this is my will. Take care that you do your part. And the chorus is, we're old men, let the younger ones do it, right? They don't want to bring right. that down. Right. Uh, I do not mean that. The centuries have been appointed. Then, then what is it that you would have us do? You will give no support to whoever breaks this law. Only a crazy man is in love with death, says the chorus. Right. And then he accuses them of being ruined by the hope of profit. That's one of, yeah. one of his bribery so, accusations. I guess yeah. I see very little connection between the vision of the state that Creon is putting out there, which I, I do think is autocratic, and... This notion that there is a will of the gods, in, in a way, I feel like he's lost that, that sense. Yeah, but look at that whole previous argument where he's talking about being a friend of the fatherland and that being the foundation of, you know, so maybe you're saying that he's sort of departing from grounding things in the divine there and he's just left with the state itself or the land itself. And that it's not just grounding it in the divine where we think of a divine idea of the good. It's also grounding it in the natural world. It's grounding it in tradition. In other words, I feel like there's a cosmology here that, that if we ignore, we might sort of misplace the sort of judgment that Sophocles is making on Creon. Do you mean something different than sort of classical hubris on the part of Creon? That what he's being found guilty of is essentially overreaching contrary to the gods or fate or the way the world is. Does Eubris necessarily take that, the connotations that you just, is Eubris more of a flaw that can have many different types of content? I would be perfectly content to be accused of misinterpreting that word, I guess. That's what I've always understood it as, having a relatively broad sense of that kind of overreaching there's always kind of a fuzziness between the gods as entities and the gods as representing the natural world and the forces that are outside of human construction and artifact. I think it critically involves at least yes. pride, right? 
or maybe I'm misinterpreting here, but I, you know, and this is what I took in part to be the significance of the chorus's response to Creon when they say, this resolution, Creon, is your own, because he's trying to speak as if he is the state. And they are saying, well, this is your decree, and the implied thing is not the state's. Or you are actually acting not out of love for the state or for fatherland, as you claim, but out of self-love. You're um, not acting as a king properly, and a king for whom the citizens and the state come first. You're acting out of your own personal agenda. Yeah. Yeah, so what's wrong with, you know, screw all this connecting it with the fundamental ethical principles in conflict that what we have here, just the, the psychoanalytic take on it, it doesn't matter that we didn't all read this Almansi paper, but yeah, you're getting at that whatever they say, the different characters in terms of their justifications that I'm just upholding the will of the gods, of course, everybody is going to act here and maybe always acts out of deep personal interests. Mere reverence for the gods is not going to actually motivate you to do anything. Just like it's fear that motivates the chorus to do what they do. And it's uh, paranoia and uh, wanting to solidify his power that's motivating Creon and some weird death drive for Antigone. It's much different. So Antigone is acting out of love for her. So th this is, again, where I think the theme of love is actually quite important and the talk of love at the end of the play. So Antigone seems to be acting out of love for her brother. But all you need is yeah. love. And Creon and out of self-love. <laughs> And Hyman, of course, out of love for... Well, and his father, too, right? He seems to be genuinely concerned yeah, about yeah, that's right. Creon overstepping, trying to find a way to tread in between that. In some ways, I find his speeches the most... Touch in with touch reality. With reality most deft and revealing, yeah. and they're the only ones that present not someone sort of standing on their soapbox and just screaming out what they think. That's Creon and Antigone, but he sees multiple sides of what's going on. Right. He starts out the whole conversation with his father saying, I support you, and and then tries to gently lead him in a different direction. And then, of course, Creon erupts. And, yeah. In fact, I guess he never really talks to, even in the plot of the play, you don't see him ever talking to Antigone. But as a principle, he shows up at her tomb and she's already dead. And I guess her sister is the one who's trying to talk her out of it. But she never really has the balance that Hyman has. She's not principled in any direction or another. I mean, well, you know, she is willing to die with her sister at one point in the play. John was all like, I'm going to be Lucy Lawless's fiance. That's awesome. I'm going to get to do kissy Listen, scenes with her. Listen, the no. tragedy, the real tragedy here was that I was typecast yet again as a young lover. And, uh, <laughs> I'm tired of that. A young lover not getting any. <laughs> no, he got some in the end. He yes. joined her in death. Leaned on his sword uh, and then climbed onto her body. Oh, no, no, no. She was hanging, so he That's right. grasped he her body. Her the love, Man. the Liebestot. <laughs> you know, we haven't talked about Eurydice. The one line that she had? She's important, I guess. Well, that was my question. Is this just something to heap insult to injury on Creon <laughs> to just make things even shittier for him? Or is there something else? He can't go on to be the founder of a dynasty or the continuer of a dynasty. I'll read the line. It's a 920 seven on mine the chorogos says oh look Eurydice, our queen has she overheard us the messenger talking about hymen being dead and antigone being dead and she says i've heard something friends as i was unlocking the gate of palace's shrine for i needed her help today so she needed wisdom i heard a voice telling of some new sorrow and i fainted there at the temple with all my maidens about me 
But speak again, whatever it is, I can bear it. Grief and I are no strangers. And then she hears the news and she goes and kills herself. So what's the significance there? I mean, I heard a voice telling of some new sorrow. Is that implying that she, like Tiresias, is getting divine signals about this? She was trying to get into the shrine, but she's not in the shrine yet. It's not that Athena has told her that something is wrong. It's a voice. She could be overhearing some random person talking. It was unclear to me. She doesn't get into the shrine as she's unlocking it. You know, I heard of my own sorrow, and then she faints, and then... John goes on to the significance of it, which is this idea of Creon being deprived of any descendants, of any dynasty, of any, obviously you can remarry, but of this particular line. Getting back to the wedding that can't happen, the offspring that can't happen, the reuniting of the line, or the creation of the heir of Laos, that obviously goes through Hymen and Antigone, and the barrenness is there, but Creon can't father another child to start the state again. Like, the state dies with him. You're not acting as a king properly, and a king for whom the citizens and the state come first. You're acting out of your own personal agenda. Creon, if he gets remarried, unless he marries his mene, which would be a disaster. <laughs> uh, if he marries anybody else, it has to be somebody that doesn't have a name, because in this society, that's my theory. It's, it's <laughs> We have the important characters who are only in this family, and then everyone else, the chorus, the messenger... He can't say, hey, it's Ned the Messenger. No, he just has no name. The Sentry has no name. David Brind would not approve of such hero worship in a text like that. The chorus themselves should contribute positively to resolving the difference. Well, who has a closing or something like that? Something that is bursting at the seams. That we haven't, haven't heard say. Uh, Wes read some Greek for us. It'd be a nice way to go out. Oh, that would be nice. The meter is not going to be correct. I don't think anybody else will notice except you. All right. I'll read a little bit of this. I don't know. We're going to get ancient Greek people telling us about what I've done wrong, but oh well. Just the very beginning of it. O koinon atadelphon ismenes kara, arois autizeus ton apidipu kakon, apoion ukinon etizosen tele, udengarut algenon ut ates ater. Ut aiskron ut atimon esthopoion u. Tonson tekakon uk apop ego kakon. Kainun tuti au fasi pandemon pole. Kerugma, there it is, kerugma. Kerugma thenai ton strategon arteos. Ekes ti kesekusas ese lanthane. Prostus filus stekonta ton extron kaka. Kaka means bad. And that whole thing is just translated as Ismene, dear sister. <laughs> That's the oldest uh, exactly. Bugs Bunny gimmick where they meet the natives <laughs> and, you know, they say, two yeah. they say two words and the translation is like... Anyway, I couldn't find someone reading it online just to get a better sense. So it's an iambic trimeter. So I honestly don't know how it's supposed to actually sound as far as the meter goes. As a theater person or former theater person or whatever, just throw out there... I don't know how difficult I would always find a lot of these more abstract ideas that would come out of the play to actually stage them in the play. They can't even stage a fight scene. Certainly they can't stage an abstract idea. It's a stage in such a way that these ideas sort of unfold in some way. It's very difficult. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, this was This was nice. If we wanted to 
still be going after three hours and feel like we wanted more, we would have had to do more than one play. But we really soaked this thing, I feel, for all that we possibly could have. Next time, Wes and I will be on a special bonus episode where we talk more with Jonathan Sagal, our guest for the Schopenhauer episode. We only talked about music toward the end with him, really, even though the whole thing was supposed to be about music, but they were so hard to get through Schopenhauer. And I know, know Jonathan wanted to rant about music more, so... Uh, we're getting him and then uh, Victor Krumenacher, who is the, the bass player from his band, Camper Van Beethoven, who is also a very uh, smart, talkative guy. And so just uh, we don't even have a text there. We have some topics about music, about the songwriting life. Uh, and uh, it should be pretty interesting. We're supported by your donations. Please go to partialexaminelife.com. Make a contribution. Big donors since last time include Colin Negrich, Timothy Perigo, Chang-Chi Young, Max Kevill, Dylan Tucker, Michael Offerbach, Adam Balch, Brian Snell, Steve Crawford, Keith Maggart, Alice Parra, Alex Connolly, Tobaloba Oni, Aaron Schur, Steve Hell, Stephen Seberg, Jimmy Latin, Robin Smith, Daniel Meisler, Lauren Gable, and Isabella Montgomery. Thank you. Thanks also to the many smaller donors, including those who are newly or on a continued basis signed up for our $5 a month citizen site. I want to remind folks that Partially Examined Life is an Amazon affiliate. If you go to partiallyexaminedlife.com, click the Amazon ad in the right-hand margin, make the purchases that you're going to make at Amazon anyway, then around 6% of the money you pay will go to us at no additional cost to you. So please bookmark that. It's a way you can support us easily on an ongoing basis if you buy stuff from Amazon. We are also an Audible affiliate. Audible is the biggest distributor of audiobooks. They have a very good subscription service. If you want to try that out, go to audibletrial.com slash P-E-L. I want to point out if you do that, or even if you don't want to sign up for their service, but I personally, Mark Linsenmeyer, have now narrated several books available at Audible or through the Amazon site, including one that just came out on the lives of Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I also did one on Nietzsche. I did one on Leonardo da Vinci. I even did one on surviving a zombie outbreak. So go search for my name at Audible to get those. Hey, we've got a Facebook page. We've got a Twitter feed. We have a blog, partialexamlife.com. You can go and discuss this yourself. You could start a not-school group, just like the one that we already had, but discussing a different Oedipus play. Certainly, you want to go there and discuss the one that we had. There's also going to be an after show on this episode with uh, Danny Lobel. So that's going to be on June 28th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Sign up at Partially Examined Life. All right. Okay. John, thanks for coming on. Yeah, very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, John. Oh, hell, awesome. hell thank you. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Good night. Take care. Good night. Good night. This is going to be a little little uh, self-pity kind of thing called Woe is Me. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey folks, it's Mark from The Partially Examined Life. Did you know that all of our episodes since episode 109 have had an after show recorded after them? It's where listeners like you get to discuss the episode that just happened. And for the past bunch of times, the host for them has been Danny Lobel, the host of the Modern Day Philosophers podcast, who is a very funny guy. The full audio from the after shows, slightly edited, is posted for Partially Examined Life citizens... But this is such an awesome thing that we're trying to push it out to the wider population here. So here's a preview. It's 15 minutes near the beginning of a, I think, two-hour or so discussion featuring Danny, Wes Alwyn, Daniel Cole, David Buchanan, Eric Weissengruber, Frank Markopoulos, and Tara Lee Bell. Now, if you're not a citizen, you can still actually see this whole thing because these all get recorded on YouTube while we're doing it. So you can find the full video for this link from partiallyexaminedlife.com. Hope you enjoy this small chunk of the after show from episode 117. And Lucy Lawless would have said, <laughs> she would have said, it's okay, you did a good job there. You know, it was a tough moment for a minute there, but uh, all's worked out, all's well, it ends well. It's an Australian made. accent, not a New Zealand accent. Uh, yeah, tough line there. It's all just different measures of the English accent, isn't it? Hey, Terrelay is here. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. We're discussing Antigone or Antignon, if you pronounce it incorrectly, like I originally did. <laughs> Antigon. I thought Paul Provenza played the dad really well. <laughs> yeah. Like he has that Italian kind of like way of talking. You know, like, hey, hey, listen. And I felt like it was like a really good character for him, you know? Yeah. He kind of reminded me of, like, one of the Sopranos or something. You could play it like a mob boss. That yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Hey, look, I'm going to whack him, you know? And then he's like, you know, I've had some second thoughts. You know, <laughs> there was a prophecy. I uh, I screwed up. Let's go dig her out of the ditch. <laughs> 
On a serious note, I think, you know, one of the things that's featured in this play is kind of the difference between vendetta justice, you know, doing what's right by your family or your clan, as opposed to the law. It took real work to get over that. That still goes on, like in the mafia, because they can't operate under the regular law. They have to make their own, and so they go for the old world stuff. Right. That's thousands of years old, right? Dishonor my family, I kill you, that kind of thing. Still goes yeah, although Creon, right, Creon thinks he's transcending that, I think. Mm-hmm. He's representative of true justice, not vendetta justice. So that he's essentially willing to... Um, these are people within his family. He's the uncle of most of the people involved. So he's willing to you know, kill his niece. And So Creon thinks he's transcending familial loyalty. And so it's, it's almost an overreaction to the, the other extreme, which is the incestuous... Not just familial loyalty, but familial love that goes beyond affection to sex. To bring it up to current events, I think it's a lot to do with pride. <laughs> I felt like he had too much pride. He wouldn't listen, and the way, was it Haman, his son? Hyman, I think. Hyman. Hyman yeah. The way he presented it to him, to his father, I thought was very tactful and you know, he tried to do it in a way that wouldn't destroy his father's ego. And he was saying, I'm not even doing this to stand up for my woman. I'm doing it to stand up for you. Because at first you think he's going to agree with his father. Because he's like, what kind of son would go against his father? And the father's like, yes, you know, someone who raises a son who goes against his father is doing a detriment to himself. And and you're like, okay, well, okay. I guess he's going to take his dad's side. But he was, I thought he was just... Gently playing his ego right there, just saying, but, you know, people around town are talking, and they're saying the same, so great, and I thought that was a very telling moment in the play of just how he understood that his father had this huge ego, and he wanted to try to get through to him without destroying his pride. It also sets up the final action, too, where Creon gets his due in the end, because the conflict between... His son in him leads not only to the death of his son, but also his wife. So the sort of the fate of Oedipus's family, you know, they die out with along with the dynasty. So does his. I don't want to say it was contrived because the son's case was, you know, I could really relate to that. He was like one of the most sensible people in peace. But it also, it, it almost seemed really convenient for the final conclusion for Creon to lose everything in the end. Actually, can somebody remind me, because I was confused as I was listening to the discussion, what is the relationship between Creon and his family and the Oedipus story? So I know there's Creon a is the brother of Jocasta, oh. who is Oedipus's mother and wife. Wife. Okay. So he's both brother-in-law to Oedipus and uncle to Oedipus. There is uncertainty about his position. Because if you remember, Oedipus comes in and he marries Jocasta, and so he is the tyrant. He has a position as ruler in the city, and then he has children. And so the question is, well, what's the succession going to be? It's up in the air, because he is the husband of a queen. Okay, so, you know, I guess his children would come next, but, you know, what pull does Creon have? Even in the mythology, who's going to take power next? It's a moment of crisis. There's no sure, easy path of succession, even in the mythology, not just in Sophocles or the other dramatists. 
Yeah, I wondered if it was a statement on some kind of quote-unquote sexual morality that, like, all this bad stuff surrounds, so to speak, the sin of Oedipus, right? <laughs> so, like, Oedipus and his mother curse everybody around them. Like, everyone's going to die who is in their path. I wonder if it was a statement on that at all. I think Paul or Lucy at the end brought up that it might have been a political satirization of what was going on with the leader at the time. Was that ever figured out, Wes? Did anyone ever look into who that leader was? Say it again. I think it was Lucy at the end of the episode who asked if it was actually like Creon was based on the leader of that time. No, it's just mythology. Yeah, they didn't want to cut. That might be a possibility. But if you want to talk about sort of layers of interpretation, the audience who is sitting watching that play are members of a republic, the Athenian Republic, you know, with a popular assembly, direct democracy for citizen males. So they are watching this story of a kingship and before that with Oedipus, a, a tyranny. So you have people who live in, again, where there are, there are briberies, there's cabals behind the scenes running little games, Pericles and his mistress running things behind the show. You have that very concrete activity of a small city's politics. And then these ideas of these mythic figures and the idea of a tyrant or a king. So, you know, you get Creon talking about people doing these dirty deals for cash behind the scene, which is of that world of a democratic polity, but he's also, you know, a king and associated with tyrants. So there's lots of layers to explore, is, is all I'm trying to say there. And he loves to remind everybody that he's a king. Seems throughout the whole time. <laughs> but I'm a king. <laughs> uh, this is what kings do. It's good to be the king. <laughs> I was thinking that even if it doesn't make reference to a specific historical figure, he's kind of typical Creon. Yes. You know, he makes a fine speech in protection of the state and how you can't allow the traitors to, you know, be honored and all that stuff. I was reminded of contemporary politicians who you know, scare everybody that our way of life is under some existential threat and so they're going to do this tyrannical thing to protect us all. It is mythic in the sense that it could be about anybody of any era. It's just a almost like a human nature thing that just transcends form of government. And we didn't really get into the background with Aristotle, but that's what Aristotle says about poetry. It says, history is about what did happen. Poetry is about the kinds of things that happen, which is why it is more philosophic than history. So that's what Aristotle says in the Poetics. So it does have this applicability to multiple situations rather than, you know, designating specific causes and effect loci and things like that. That's what I was saying. Thank you. That's much yeah. pithier. Well, it's Aristotle. He's a, he's a pretty smart biologist. <laughs> so, David, you're saying what Creon did is tyrannical, and I made the argument during the podcast that he's actually acting on principle, which is a question. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. So, I mean, I think it's either he's a person who thinks he's upholding justice. So, in that case, his pride and his tyrannical behavior are sort of unfortunate byproducts of his certainty about what is just or unjust. Or you could just see him as someone who's just ruthlessly 
after power or drunk with power or something like that. So I think those are two different readings. Guys, what, do, what do people think about that? You guys talked about that a bit in the first part of the after show. When I was listening to that, I was thinking 100% it has to be... I don't think he thought it was right what he was doing. If he thought it was right, he couldn't have been swayed because you guys brought up the point that it was a very quick, like, switch when he decides to go back and try and free her from the, uh, what was it, the cave or the complex that he... The tomb, yeah. The tomb, right. So there was things like, oh, well, his prophecies are normally correct, but it seemed like he knew all along that he was wrong, and it didn't take too much of a catalyst for him to be like, okay, it's like you did something wrong, you know it's wrong, it's weighing on your conscience, and you're just waiting for any kind of proof to confirm that it's wrong. Like, he needed something, it seemed like, to justify, because he had such a strong ego, he needed something else to, like, say, okay, fine, not because I know it's wrong, but because he says it's wrong, and he's a great prophet, and he's blind and everything, and he was just basically so stubborn and headstrong and drunk with power, like Wes said, that how many times does he mention he's a king? Like, it's unnecessary. We understand. <laughs> he has to tell me, yeah, look, I'm a king. I'm taking um, it easy. I'm unless he's anxious about no one getting it or someone calling him on it. Like, there's the repetition because he's anxious. It's on his mind that he's not getting respected, that there's some people who don't think he should be king. That constant repetition is to reassure himself or to, you know, pound the message home to others. Yeah, I actually didn't think that he was just drunk on power, to begin with at least. I felt like at the beginning he really believed that what he was saying was right, or he was trying to head towards what was right. When I first started listening to the discussion, I was like, oh yeah, so this is some kind of a conflict between the moral values of civilization and abstraction and law and literacy, and then I think, Wes, you even used the term communitarian, like a more almost like tribal kind of ethic. On further reflection, I don't think that's the case. I think that both Antigone and Creon are actually representing pretty abstract kinds of morality, and it's really, really hard to work out what to actually do in the practical world when you're working with abstract concepts of morality. So I actually think that Creon is really like, but guys, there's this order to the universe, and in this order of the universe, the king has to be able to say certain things, like he has to be able to make judgment calls and say, we're honoring this person, we're not honoring this person. Sometimes it, it drives me crazy because it sounds stupid when I hear people say this, but I think there's a genuine question under there when people do things that break the law. This actually might be sort of interesting. The black woman, the activist who climbed up to the top of the pole and took the Confederate flag down, she broke the law, technically. And a lot of people look at that and say, if we're going to say that that's okay, then next we're going to have people running around raping and pillaging. And that might be sort of melodramatic, but I think that what Creon is trying to take a stand for is, we said when we formed civilizations, when we formed cities, that this was how we were going to live. We were going to live by the letter of the law. It's written down. It's conceptual. We have to stick to it. So I don't think that he's just operating on power. I do think there's an ego trip going on there, like I a very saw, problematic one. I saw a thing to, you know, what you just described, and it was actually pretty effective, because Creon's first giving the speech about, you know, protecting the integrity of the state, 
and especially in that context, right? Because they're surrounded by wild animals and barbarians, and civilization just exists behind stone walls at this period in history. It really is a pretty fragile and precious thing. He's making a real case, and I found it kind of convincing, and mm -hmm. he himself was convinced by it. But yeah. later it's revealed, I think, in the play, and then he sees it himself that it was really, this is kind of a rationalization mm -hmm. of his own insecurity. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. his rule was threatened by this traitor who came into the city mm -hmm. to try to take over again. And he is not just, say, a politician appealing to abstract notions of rule of law. There has been a crisis mm -hmm. resolved the night before mm -hmm. this city was under assault by its mm -hmm. rivals who were going to destroy it. You know, the long traditions of honoring the dead and religious ritual. There has been a crisis, and he is the sovereign who's going to establish, reestablish some kind of order in this state of emergency. And it falls to him to do that. So it's not as if we're witnessing a schemer or have his, you know, Machiavellian plan come to fruition. This guy's in a panic. And so he makes a lot of calls, but he then goes, oh, my God, I just made that call. I can't believe I made that stupid call. But he can't appear to be weak because he's the guy, he's the sovereign, who's there to instill some kind of order. So <laughs> when you're saying, I'm the decider. I'm the decider. <laughs> I'm the decider. Are we going to watch you play sovereign to your daughter now? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> that was very Creon like the way. Rebellious children. Rebellious children. <laughs> uh.